the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello, and welcome to this third and final podcast in our latest series of M&A Perspective. I am David Watkins, a corporate partner at Slaughter and May, and in this episode, partners Alex Dustin and Kerry O'Connell from our London and Brussels offices will be exploring trends behind the headline M&A statistics in Europe and looking at how companies are navigating increased regulation in order to get deals done. So just to begin, in terms of M&A activity for the last 12, 18 months, I think it's fair to say that it's been strong across all sectors and all types of deal. Public M&A has come back very strongly since second half of 2020, certainly compared to the first half of 2020. And we're seeing a, a strong pipeline of private M&A. This is mirrored across UK and Europe, both in terms of deal count and deal value. And I think one qualification to that would be that we are seeing a slightly smaller number of higher value deals than we did in the so-called pre-pandemic years. In terms of the types of deal, it's certainly true that tech deals are topping the tables in terms of deal count and deal value, both across UK and Europe. The Kazoo DSPAC being a, a good example of that, and we will touch on the impact of SPACs later on in the talk. Um, unsurprisingly, pharma biotech deals constituted a high proportion of the highest value deals. In particular, Jazz Pharma takeover of GW Pharmaceuticals, firm active for the target on that one, but that value of the target is about seven and a half billion US dollars. Um, and I think that's a good first question for Kerry, really. Are those tech and pharma sectors something that is coming under increased scrutiny in your area of practice or are there other sectors? It's very interesting because the two sectors that, that you say, you know, are where you're really seeing an uptick in the activity are actually two of the main sectors that are really in focus for the competition authorities. So both pharma and the, the tech, the digital space. And, you know, there are lots of regulations in the pipeline and um, both the European Commission, UK level, but, you know, other competition authorities throughout Europe as well. And um, looking at regulating or increasing the, the scope of um, the regimes for in particular digital companies. And that's both on the antitrust and on on the merger front. But they're definitely the same uh, focus areas for the competition authorities. And, you know, what we've seen is a real increase in interventionism, both at the European Commission and the UK CMA le um, level, in many instances focused right on those sectors. So. The increased interventionism kind of starts at the point of jurisdiction with both authorities trying to broaden their reach. And if I talk about the European Commission for a minute, what we're seeing them do is change their policy in relation to what we call Article 22 referrals. And um, so the Article 22 referral mechanism allows a, an EU member state to refer a deal uh, where to the, to the European Commission for review, where the European Commission didn't have jurisdiction to review that deal in the first instance. And historically, that has been used in circumstances where the member state did have jurisdiction over that deal. Uh, the Commission in the last year or so has changed its policy, and in particular to get at these pharma and tech deals, is now telling national member states to consider referring deals up to it even when they don't have jurisdiction in the first instance, if it's a deal that the Commission thinks they want to look at. 
um, what they're trying to get at, the Commission says, are, are killer acquisitions in particular in those spaces where you've got a, in the tech sphere, you know, you've got a, an important startup company or in the pharma um, situation, you've got a pipeline products, for example. Um, and the, the targets might not be very big in financial revenue market share terms and therefore might not trip merger thresholds, but their competitive significance is greater um, in terms of their innovation. And you're left with a world, though, where we've got all this uncertainty at the start of a deal, because you would look at the kind of traditional jurisdictional analysis and see whether a transaction needs to be notified to the Commission or, or elsewhere in Europe at member state level. And transactions that look like they don't trip any thresholds whatsoever, you still have the risk that they end up falling under the Commission's review through this change in policy on, on how Article 22s are used. And you know, it's interesting that the Commission has said it is in particular targeting the, the pharma and tech sectors and, and you know, killer acquisitions, but in reality, the policy allows them to, to apply the, the referral mechanism to any transaction. So the first transaction where this has been done, uh, Lula's um, acquisition of Grail on which the firm is acting, I mean, that is not a killer acquisition, it's a vertical deal, the parties don't compete. And they don't fare that squarely fit within those two um, digital and, and pharma sectors either. And um, so a lot of uncertainty created around yeah, a drive for increased interventionism in particular in those sectors. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And it's it's funny that even in this environment of increased interventionism, it doesn't seem to be putting the brakes on deals in those sectors. It is just something else to factor into your deal timetable and working out maybe more innovative ways of trying to get your deals done. I mean, in terms of some of the other reasons for the uptick in m and I mean, clearly we are in a world where economies and markets are seeking to return to normal. Vaccine rollout has been successful amongst most of the developed markets with one or two notable exceptions. Um, we are seeing a lot in the UK of inbound M&A from private equity sponsor-backed deals. I guess because in many ways the pandemic was not a structural systemic issue. There's a lot of so-called dry powder. So one of the last stats that I saw was that there is over a trillion dollars worth of dry powder in private equity. And that compares to less than half that in the previous five years, which is something quite significant. So we are going to be seeing the impact of that. And um, we've already seen the impact of that. The Blackstone GIP Cascade deal signature on which we acted, the target TDR Capital's bid for a Breco on which we also acted for the target. But we've also seen the other side of the coin in acting for Fortress, narrowly missing out on the uh, much publicized Morrison's deal. So that's that's one key factor. We've seen the impact of SPACs. Now that is now not only a feature in the US, increasingly becoming a feature in Europe and the UK. That is a double-edged sword, I think, because there is also some of the negative side of SPACs coming through lots. Of, the majority of US SPACs now are valued below the magic $10 threshold, but that there is still a heavy pipeline of SPACs, and I think we are going to continue to see SPAC-driven acquisitions. There is the wind down of government support across UK and Europe, and so that might drive increased volumes of distressed deals, asset deals, 
and I think a, a feature not just of the post-pandemic period, but, but of the last few years is increased shareholder engagement and activism. Now that that is also two-edged. That can both prevent certain deals being done, but increased shareholder engagement can encourage deals to be done, new listings, mergers, sales of non-core assets. So we are seeing all of that as well. And then uh, perhaps a bit of a cliche now, but UK is potentially undervalued. Their companies and the, um, the entities operating in the UK are undervalued for a number of reasons, not just the pandemic, but also so-called Brexit discount. And I think it's fair to say, Kerry, that certainly in your area of practice, you're seeing all the effects of Brexit probably more acutely than anybody. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, the the new world post-Brexit, you know, what, what we're left with is situations where um, transactions that would have previously benefited from the European Commission's one-stop shop, and therefore we wouldn't have been talking to the UK CMA about them, now have to, or well, many transactions anyway, now have to be reviewed and approved in, in both jurisdictions. And there are now several cases that have gone through or are going through that process since, you know, Brexit kicked in in January. And it's a total spectrum on how they've been handled. So we've seen cases where the authorities have been really joined up from kind of both a process and a substantive perspective. So they've coordinated to make the, the pre-notification periods as efficient as possible. You know, we haven't duplicated RFIs and questions. Instead, that's all been kind of done on a very cohesive, in a very cohesive way. And, and then some cases where that has followed through to the formal notification process as well. I've seen a case where both authorities kind of split the market test, which was very interesting. So the European Commission went out and spoke to European customers. The UK spoke to the UK customers. They divided any other jurisdictions up between them, you know, some customers in the US, for example, and they shared notes of the various calls that they'd had with these relevant third parties. And that led to a really efficient review process and both both um, authorities coming out substantively also in the same place. So we got the same conclusion, which is what you would expect because um, these were global markets. But we've also seen it go the other way. We've seen um, transactions where you know there's been no coordination at all. You're running two parallel pre-notifications. You're answering an RFIs you know, with both authorities asking slightly different questions or questions in slightly different ways, focusing in different areas and getting on the clock with both authorities at very different times, and then therefore their formal substantive review just going in completely different directions. So we've just seen that in the Facebook customer case where that transaction is in phase two with the European Commission, but last week was cleared at phase one by the UK CMA. So, you know, very different outcomes on, on the same facts. Um, it's a really difficult world to be in because you don't know at the outset of the case kind of which way yours is going to go. Um, you know, I think the best advice I can give is to speak to both authorities very quickly um, to try and agree how they're going to coordinate their processes to try and you know, make the process efficient, but also ideally get to a place where they're coming out in a similar place in substance, because otherwise you end up fighting different wars on different fronts. Um, you know, it, it gets really very complicated uh, to get for getting a deal done. Um, so, yeah, really important to think about it at the outset to speak to the authorities to decide how the post Brexit parallel reviews are going to go and to be thinking about to what extent you can sequence or coordinate the formal timelines of these reviews. So you get to a point where you're getting your substantive feedback from each authority kind of around the same time that leaves 
to a massive crunch in terms of actually dealing with both authorities on the same time frame. It's difficult, but at least in that world, you know what you're fighting with both authorities around the same time. As a really interesting um, situation, I think we've all been a little bit surprised by just how divergent the approach has been in different cases. And therefore, ones are really try and manage with the authorities at the outset, else you have little predictability over you know, how your timelines are going to go. A very stimulating time for advisors, and certainly I would think that experience will count for everything in this initial phase of, for example, the parallel review process where people that have been there and done it before will have the best advantage. Yeah. Um, I mean, other headwinds we we mentioned before about whether this SPAC boom and the momentum will come out of that slightly if the post-acquisition SPAC companies continue to be undervalued as against initial expectations. Um, obviously, we could never rule out recurrence of the pandemic or lockdowns or a further shock, although that does seem to be increasingly um, unlikely. I think we'll continue to see um, depressed corporate M&A activity versus, say, SPACs or private equity as companies in certain sectors focus on their recovery and not necessarily on doing deals, but that, that's, um, that's a big generalisation, certainly won't be true across the piece. London's share of the global IPO market could feed into this. There have been concerns about that um, in recent months and years, in fact. There's two sides to that story, of course. Um, if some people consider listed London listed companies to be undervalued that can drive more deals in the short medium term but maybe less clear what that does to deals in the longer term but it remains to be seen there is of course now a drive to loosen certain regulations to encourage founder led companies to be listed um, in London and we'll see those changes come into force at the end of this year to allow for example dual class share structures, which will be very interesting, particularly to some tech focused companies that want to retain a founder presence in the initial phase post listing. Um, but also, I think we will see increased regulation in certain areas as well that will give people cause for thought. There is the new Pension Schemes Act and there is, of course, the NSI Act, which will come into force at the beginning of next year. And Kerry knows a fair bit about that. And I think it's fair to say that You've started to feel questions on it already. I certainly feel the questions on it. And even though we're in the informal notification phase of that act. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So, as you say, the act doesn't come into force until January next year, but it has a certain um, element of uh, retroactivity um, where transactions can still be called in uh, that were initiated pre January um, last year. I think it's from November 2020. Uh, deals can still be called in. So we're already having to consider whether current transactions could meet the thresholds for a review under a regime that's not yet in force. So you can't actually go and notify them and get your clearances yet because it, it's not set up, it's not active. Um, but what you can do is think about sending an email to, to Bayes, the, the, the department of the government that's going to be dealing with these reviews, to put them on notice about your transaction try and get some kind of heavily caveated but high level comfort from them that they probably won't be interested in your deal. Uh, but you've at least put them on notice so that once the regime comes into force, 
their the time frame on which they can decide to call your de deal in is, is limited to six months, whereas otherwise they have five years. So we're definitely fielding queries already. I mean, it, it's going to be an interesting change for the UK. Um, you know, it significantly increases the scope for FDI review. Um, you know, and introduces a mandatory notification regime for some deals which we've not had before um, in the UK. I mean, the UK government has said that they expect between 1,000 to 1,800 notifications under the regime, and that of those cases, around 70 to 95 are expected to be called in for kind of a full national security review. And that compares to, I think, around 20 cases where the government has intervened based on the current public interest regime that's in the Enterprise Act since that was introduced in 2003. Um, so, you know, a massive step change in the number of transactions that are going to be scrutinized here. And, you know, and again, something at the outset of deals is really important to be identifying these filings clearly because you need to make them if you need to make them, but you also need to factor them in to the deal timeline and, and overall um, feasibility. Absolutely right. And, and I think you've summed up what we've been trying to sum up, sum up in this sort of whistle stop tour of UK and Europe M&A activity. There are, there are a number of factors in favour of a continuing uh, strong push to, to private and public deals, but there are also a, a number of headwinds too. So, I mean, my very high level view of all of that is that there are lots of reasons to be optimistic, but there are lots of new uncertainties of the kind that we haven't really looked at before. Yeah, exactly. Things just need working through, you know, very carefully at the start of a transaction to try and predict all of this as much as possible. Clearly not a reason to not be doing deals, but a reason to be thinking about the right issues very early on and, and factoring, factoring all that into the deal planning. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.